to the program. I'm Jeff Schechtman. Think how much the world has changed in just the past 25 years. And then think about how little our politics has changed. Not just that we're still talking about Clinton and Bush, but that the issues, the ideas, and the debates, and the way in which they are discussed has not changed. One does not have to throw out the principles of our founders to retool the political process. In fact, it is precisely those tools that should be used to reshape everything about our politics. The good news is that this effort is being midwifed by young people with new values who believe in transparency and honesty as opposed to duplicity, who believe in fairness, not obfuscation, who see that the future is not about fixing the old car, but blowing it up and taking Tesla or Uber. We are at what some have called the millennial moment, when power shifts from parents to children, when adults brought up in a different era realize that they've lost touch with what's going on. Clearly, there's something happening here. We're going to talk to two guests today that are at the leading edge of that something. They're Sarah Leonard and Bhaskar Sankara. Sarah Leonard is a senior editor at The Nation, as well as editor of the online journal The New Inquiry. Bhaskar Sankara is the founder of Jacobin, a political quarterly, and a contributor to In These Times. And together, they're the editors of a new volume entitled The Future We Want, Radical Ideas for the New Century. Sarah, Bhaskar, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for Thanks having so me. much. It's great to have you here. Sarah, let me start with you. Why now? What's happening that really is giving some of these new ideas and new way of looking at our politics? What is it that's giving it traction right now? Well, I think there are a couple of things. Uh, one is some really simple material conditions. So we know that right now um, most Americans who go to college are carrying a large amount of debt. Um, an average of $29,000, I think, and that across the country, we have a total of a trillion dollars of college debt. Um, unemployment for workers under 25 is around 18%. That's pretty high. Um, and we know that since the recession, household incomes have declined. So we're not looking at doing better than our parents, which is something we were always taught would be our fate if we did the right thing and we went to college. Um, so we have some real problems there. And then we have the added fact that people feel like they're not really able to influence their government in a way that feels um, responsive and authentic. And we actually know there have now been some studies how much more money influences our government than the voters do, the average voters who aren't contributing hundreds of thousand dollars to the political process. So you have this combined sense that there are these big problems. There isn't really a natural route to solve them. And then suddenly we're seeing this sort of rising popularity of a socialist candidate, which I think is notable because these young voters and Bernie Sanders is leading among young voters in particular, were born after 1989. And so I think this is a generation that's open to a really wide range of political ideas in a way that people who lived through the Cold War are not. And they're also suffering the conditions that would make those ideas appealing. So this sort of confluence of events um, is producing a really interesting changing political climate. Bhaskar, talk a little bit about the, the range of this. Even among young people, how broad is this sentiment? How broad is this feeling that, that we're talking about? I think at the very least, people are aware that uh, they're going to be entering a situation where they're going to have a tougher time getting by than you know, their parents have. Um, and, um, and, you know, it's not like their parents have been doing very well because 
real wages have been declining or stagnant, at least since the 1970s. So I think there, there's a sense that that's really, um, you know, an awareness that things need to change, that inequality is a problem, that student debt is a problem, that we need better, more robust social goods, that we need more employment. So I think that basic level, you know, people aren't dumb. They're aware that things are tough for them and that things could be easier if there was better policies and, and they felt like there was politicians and, and, and people trying to help them. Uh, that said, I don't think people are, you know, just because they're supporting a socialist candidate, I wouldn't make the leap and say that they're, um, you know, ready for, um, you know, everything that, that, you know, Sarah or myself or even Bernie Sanders would su- suggest, but they're willing to kind of listen to the ideas. And this is a far cry from, you know, the way things were when I first became a socialist in, you know, high school. You know, people look like you, like you were crazy. Uh, now, you know, they may still look at me like I'm crazy, but they don't <laughs> seem to. Um, they seem to be willing to, like, listen to these ideas and engage in the debate and uh, have a much broader, um, you know, intellectual and, and political, um, um, a much more open-mindedness, I think. To what extent do subsidiary movements, Bhaskar, have an impact on all of this? What we've seen in terms of the gay rights movement, the Black Lives Matter movement, the the sense of income inequality, to what degree to all, do all of these subsidiary ideas play into this fundamental change we're talking about? Yeah, I think that um, this is one thing that I just saw Sanders um, yesterday, actually, in, in Portsmouth, New Hampshire, and one thing he said was that, you know, he's the only candidate he'll tell people that you can't achieve change by electing anyone, including him, that change has to happen. He said in a speech from the bottom up, and he talked about social movements. And I think that's what Occupy Wall Street represented. I think that's what Black Lives Matter represented. I think this is what these other movements represent, um, trying to kind of change uh, um, the way that issues are, are perceived by the American people, the way they're covered in the media, and open up space for candidates like Sanders to emerge. That said, I don't think we could um, overestimate the extent to which Bernie Sanders himself has been kind of a catalyst. He's been breaking through the moment, because, I mean, we were really um, you know, expecting uh, this time last year, I think, to at this point already have Hillary Clinton as a presumed nominee and to see her moving right uh, to try to get ready for uh, a centrist general election kind of posture. And I think we shouldn't um, underestimate the extent to which uh, Sanders is kind of better than what we deserve, given the fact that our movements are still very small and things like Occupy have fizzled out. And even really inspiring movements like Black Lives Matter um, have still only kind of captured the imagination of a small group of, um, of, of people, even within the African-American community. Sarah, to that point, what is your sense of what's going to keep these ideas continuing to be refreshed and renewed and keep this movement going forward? That's a great question because that's the question we're going to face as soon as either Sanders wins or he doesn't win. (laughs) Either way, we can't rely on a candidate to keep the momentum going, as Bosker was saying. Um, And I think what, what will sort of keep the energy moving is uh, first, there are go- these movements that have made possible this very progressive moment, um, I would certainly point to Black Lives Matter right now, are going to keep challenging whoever wins this election. We saw during the election, they've, um, people from within the Black Lives Matter movement have gotten up, they've taken the microphone away from candidates, they've issued demands, they've staged protests, um, including with candidates who a lot of people think are 
you know, the closest politically to the movement. And the reason they did that is to use the campaign as a platform and get their issues incorporated into policymaking, which is really smart. And so they've shown that um, any politician is not going to be an end in him or herself, but a sort of platform for putting these demands forward and continuing to make progress. And so I think bringing that attitude to the post-election period is going to be absolutely crucial. And how, to, to stay on that point for a moment, Sarah, how do they envision doing that to, to the extent that it's not all about a candidate, obviously? To what extent do they see it about the political process and the need to engage in some kind of a process? Well, one thing they've opened more Americans up to is the practice of engaging in serious politics beyond election season. This movement has not been tied to any kind of election cycle, but they use it when it's there. And I think that's a really strong reminder that in many ways, politics in America, partly because of the media, cable news, has really been reduced to a couple of votes, a primary vote when it's contentious, a national vote, and then it's all over, you can go home, democracy will come back in four years. And that's not how politics work. So they've been doing certainly a lot of consciousness raising, which is the first step, whether that's on Twitter or by knocking on doors in communities. Um, and they've also been putting forward various proposals or at least conversations. This is still sort of in the debating phase about um, policing, um, some demands have been very clear, you know, military weapons should not be going to police departments. Um, and some have been more complicated. I think a lot of people in the movement are still hashing out, you know, what do we think the role of police is in society? So all of those conversations ensure that there's actually a fair bit of momentum going. I do think a big challenge right now is for the left in thinking about how we organize these movements long term. I mean, if you think back to during Occupy, a big criticism of Occupy, right, was it was really horizontal, there was no leadership, there were no demands, everything was chaos, and that was kind of true. Um, but the reason it was true was all the left institutions, like labor unions, for example, that normally teach people how to organize themselves, have been on the decline since the late 70s. So of course people don't know how to organize themselves. And what we're seeing with Occupy, with Black Lives Matter, even with this campaign, I think is a left beginning to feel powerful again and beginning to understand how it can exercise force, get organized, get bigger. And it's going in fits and starts. It has to. But I think we're seeing the left getting up and moving again, which is really encouraging. And to that point, Bhaskar, talk about the ideas that are behind that movement on the left, because it's equally important that the progressive movement and that the left not also be bogged down in some of the old ideas, even of, of left-leaning politics. I actually think that one of the really nice things about the recent uh, resurgence of well, Occupy Wall Street, but later on the Sanders campaign, is in fact, um, you know, not to, to disagree with you a little bit, is in fact the fact that they've um, looked back to some of these old ideas and, and they've made them relevant and they, they saw the ways in which the way that we used to talk about politics, we used to talk about the core politics, right? If we could boil it down to one slogan, it's kind of organizing the many against the few. And that's something really inspiring about, let's say, the Sanders campaign. And he not only says that we need... Um, free higher education, that we need universal health care, that we need all these things. He's actually pointing out 
who we need to organize against to uh, to win these things. He's talking about Wall Street. In that speech yesterday, he talked um, um, in detail about the Walton family. So he's naming the enemies, and he's naming the people that we have to organize against. And I think that's quite a bit uh, a refreshing kind of throwback to the way that politics um, used to be, and left politics used to be, as opposed to the more wishy-washy kind of triangulation or the vague kind of appeals that, that said that we, you know, aspirational appeals that say we want to go somewhere, but doesn't actually say who's standing in our way. So if anything, I think what's really refreshing about this current area is, is that it's kind of, uh, the politics does feel a bit more confrontational. And of course, it's confrontational politics, but I don't even like when it's described as polarizing or divisive, because the whole point of the politics is that it's in the interest of the vast majority of people, and it's only an, an interest of the very small minority that, that the status quo uh, serves. Sarah, talk, continue with that, but talk about it not in terms of organizing, and, and I understand completely Bhaskar's point, but, but in terms of ideas, what, what are the ideas that are emerging in terms of criminal justice, in terms of economics, in terms of, of civil liberties and rights? What are the, 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 the more modern ideas that are emerging from this movement? Well, I think that people are seeing that right now the wealth that we're generating in this country, it's not just that it's going to the 1%. We know that. Um, and Bernie Sanders says it a lot, <laughs> um, but that we have all this wealth and what is wealth supposed to do? In theory, it's supposed to mean that we are all free to flourish as human beings because we're not ground down by poverty. We're not uneducated. In theory, we should have a very sort of rich in a social sense society. Um, but instead, the way that wealth is functioning in our society is to push people down. So low wages, breaking up unions, no one has work protections, every work, everyone works crazy hours, people don't have paid leave, people don't have the money to get educated, and when they do, they go deep into debt. This is not what money is supposed to be doing. Um, and I think that people are coming to realize that redistribution and greater economic equality is fundamental to actual freedom. Um, and that this is totally fundamental to building any kind of country where people actually recognize their potential. Um, and you see this a lot. You know, Bernie Sanders loves to refer to the Nordic model the, in the Scandinavian countries. Um, and one of the sort of wonderful things about the way that those welfare states are structured um, is simply that there is a higher threshold for what everyone has a right to as a human being. So education is a right. Housing. Um, and so you don't see the sort of grinding down the waste of human potential that you're seeing right now here for no reason except that the 1% would like to continue redistributing up. Bhaskar, talk a little bit about to what extent this is all in, in addition to all of the, the issues that Sarah laid out at the beginning of this conversation, a pushback to the extreme right-wing politics that we've been seeing in the country for so many years. Yeah, I think that's really key in that uh, I think when we look back at the last 20, 30 years of American politics, it almost seems like there was some sort of massive political shift uh, throughout the late 70s and 80s. And, uh, and there, there was a belief, even among um, well-meaning liberals and other people, that this was, in fact, a push from below. We always heard about, for example, the Reagan Democrats, and we heard about the fact that you know, average people were upset with tax and spend, liberalism, with crime, with all these other things. And it all, almost makes it seem like 
Reaganism and, and, you know, the diluted Reaganism that in many ways, you know, represented the, the Clinton era, uh, was, had some sort of popular mandate. But in fact, there never really was this kind of popular support for some of these programs. Sure, people don't want society to run like, you know, many of the DMVs in this country are run. You know, they don't want to stand in line. The, you know, the bureaucratic welfare state can be kind of draining in a certain way. But, you know, people actually really wanted, um, you know, they wanted a sense of security. They wanted um, good jobs. They wanted all these things that the left has been pushing for, universal public education, uh, health care, uh, housing. They wanted these things. So I think that really there's been less a political um, shift in the sentiments of voters, and more so there's been actually now movements and politicians that are actually representing what's always been the will of a lot of people. Um, and I, I'm not saying that there's been some sort of, um, you know, coherent, um, you know, underbelly to American society that has been social democratic or socialist. What, what I'm saying is that, you know, on issue by issue, people have been with us. And I'm not surprised when Sanders says, break up the banks and redistribute wealth, that, that people are, uh, are getting behind it, even though I think a lot of more mainstream um, commentators uh, have been surprised by that. For both of you, Bhaskar, to start with you, what's needed in terms of leadership? I mean, Bernie Sanders may or may not be the ultimate messenger of this. What's needed in terms of leadership, even though it is in large measure, as you both have talked about, a grassroots movement? Right. I think you really do need leaders and people to articulate uh, these ideas and people to encourage other people to really uh, get involved and, and to to continue this uh, between the generations. Because one thing that was almost, it's almost sad about uh, Sanders is that he's speaking in this, this language and with this kind of um, fluidity and, and he's covering all these topics and he's a great organizer, he's doing all these great things. And then you realize, who's the next Sanders? You know, he's, he's an older guy, he's 74 years old, and who, who's kind of waiting in the wings? There's no set of protégés kind of around him. Uh, the socialist movement in the United States wasn't able to reproduce a kind of generation in the 80s and 90s, really. So our ranks are quite thin. So we have a movement now where we have a lot of people. You know, you go to any left-wing gathering or any meeting um, in the country, and you'll see that there's a lot of people above uh, 60, and there's a lot of people below uh, 30 or 25, and very few people in the middle. So I think when we talk about organization and leadership, part of it is creating the structures and the bodies that can actually train and politicize people and get everyone to be kind of advocates in their community. Because you don't have to be a big national politician like Bernie Sanders to talk about with your neighbors, talk with your coworkers about, you know, the real material issues that, that uh, impact your lives and about what you can do to, uh, to make a difference and to contribute, um, you know, politically. Sarah? You know, and to speak to that, I think... Um, a really good point that some people have made is that Bernie Sanders has stumbled a little bit, especially around issues of race or gender, um, sometimes on the actual issues, but more often in how he articulates them. Um, and they're the stumbles very much of a 74-year-old white guy who lives in Vermont, right? <laughs> Which is a very white state, among other things. Um, and in a way, not not so shocking, Um if somewhat unhelpful for his campaign. And what's actually really encouraging is because so much of his support is young people, these are the young people who actually completely get those issues instinctively. Um, you know, because there has been a generational shift around how we talk about race and gender. Um, 
And so the hope, and I think this is beginning to look true, is that there are a lot of young people right now who totally get those issues, who are being trained to be political by joining the Sanders campaign. It's becoming a training ground for people with those politics, but who are really deeply in touch um, and are young and are not going to stumble on the same stumbling blocks that Sanders is. And so I think that's a great training ground and a, a great sign. Sarah, what's going to prevent the movement from fizzling out after if Sanders loses, goes away, goes back to Washington or Vermont? What keeps the, what prevents it from being another situation like Occupy? Well, if you look at the people who have coalesced around Sanders, I think a lot of them are already involved in political causes other than supporting Bernie Sanders. Um, I would bet that the vast majority of people who are tweeting about Bernie Sanders also follow Black Lives Matter and also follow Fight for 15 for a $15 wage. Um, and probably also, you know, some of them were involved in Occupy and have now evolved to this point. A lot of the people who left Occupy went into other movements, including tenant organizing, Fight for 15. So while it is certainly true that this is not the same as just one big coherent movement, you know, juggernauting from one issue to the next, it's going to be a little trickier than that. A lot of people already have tie-ins with other movements that created the political context that made Sanders possible in the first place. And that's not going to go away. One thing I do try to tell people is if this is their first political involvement, they should be looking around now at what other movements they can connect with on the political left, because an election in itself is not, you know, all of politics. You're going to need some next step to take. And even if Bernie Sanders were elected, you're going to need a vehicle to put pressure on him to do the things he needs to do and to create a political context and political pressure where Congress will let him do the things he needs to do. There's no change without political pressure from below. The other part of it is really a place where I, new ideas come from, which really goes to the heart of, of your book, The Future We Want, Radical Ideas for the New Century. Sarah, talk a little bit about that. Yeah, so... We found that when we were talking about socialism, and this was before Bernie Sanders was running, so as Bosker noted, people were inclined to look at you like you're totally nuts. Um, we thought that it was our responsibility to have some way to articulate the world that we actually envisioned and not just be critics, because it's very easy to be critics. We look around, we see a lot of problems, everyone's a critic. Um, and in order to persuade people to support something as radical in America as socialism is, you have to be able to show them that it's not some scary, mysterious beast, <laughs> um, but that actually it carries a lot of planks that are um, basic and familiar and have been implemented in many places in the world in various ways. So we tried to look at major, um, major sort of spheres of life we look at education, gender, um, the environment, employment. Um, and we tried to show here's how we would do things, you know, under our, the way we imagine socialism in our utopia. And so these ideas are a mix of very practical, you know, we talk about things like full employment and a bit utopian because we haven't taken the political steps yet to get close to them. And all of this is with the understanding 
understanding that true solutions, anything that would be implemented, actually emerges from the struggle itself and that the people who pursue these political goals will be the ones who figure out the policies. You know, if we were anywhere near socialism, you could accuse us of trying to dictate policy, but I think we're we're, you know, safely not not quite there yet. But we thought it was important to start having this conversation, that it was a way of taking seriously that at some point we might actually win and want to implement these things. It wasn't just an imaginative critique. Bhaskar, talk a little bit about the language. You know, the word socialism, as Sarah talks about, carries with it all sorts of baggage, all sorts of historical context. Talk about the language of this movement and the degree to which it is shifting or changing or or embracing this older language? Yeah, I think part of it is, in fact, there's something open and honest about a candidate like Bernie Sanders using the word socialist, or like a generation of leftists like Sarah and myself using the word socialist, um, instead of just kind of saying that, you know, we have a certain set of politics, but, you know, we know American, the American people aren't going to like it, so we're going to call it progressive, or we're going to form these front groups, like a lot of the, um, let's say, the Communist Party back popular front movements did in the, throughout the 20th century, and so on. I, I think there's something nice and honest and direct about just saying, you know, this is socialist politics, but here's what we mean by saying that we're democratic socialists and we're pursuing these politics. It's that we want to extend democracy from just the political realm into the social and economic realms as well. It's that we want to take more spheres of life that are enjoyed right now only by a select few who can afford them on the market. We want to take them out of the market. We want to make them enjoyed by all people as a social right. So we're saying these things. We're saying that it's socialist. And I think through that act, we're redefining it for a generation of people. But more than that, I think that, you know, you know, I, I was born in, in, in uh, 1989, so I was born the year the Berlin Wall fell. My knowledge when I was getting politicized of socialism, my associations of it, was, I imagine, very similar to a lot of other young people. It was vaguely associated with me with, you know, certain European welfare states and things like that. It wasn't associated with, you know, uh, gulags and bread lines. Um, and I think that, that there's less baggage for younger people. But even for older people, I, I, think, I think it is important that we um, explain what our politics are, because they're going to red bait us anyway. If we called ourselves you know, liberals instead of socialists, uh, they would uh, call us uh, socialists. So it's, it's a battle that eventually we would have to grapple with. Um, so I don't think it's really about changing the language. I think it's kind of reasserting it, and more importantly, calmly kind of explaining it. And then at that point, you know, some people are going to embrace it, and some people, of course, are going to reject it. But that's true of any um, of any set of politics. And finally, Sarah, do we have to wait till more millennials reach voting age or engage in the political process, reach critical mass, essentially, before some of this takes greater hold? Some of this will be change over time, and more not just voters, but organizers and political thinkers coming up who are young and have new ideas about how wide our political possibilities are. Um, but at the same time, um, if you look at, uh, sort of as Bosker was saying, if you look at a sort of graph of Bernie Sanders supporters, the majority of them are young, but then it ticks back up with people over 60. Um, and so there's actually a range of people who are interested in these politics. And I think particularly for people in the middle, um, as they see their kids coming out of college, going into debt, not being able to get a job, I think the generations are very much tied together. And so 
We're seeing a big change now. I think more young people coming up will make a difference. But I wouldn't rule out the idea that a lot of people are going to begin seeing the needs that they and their family have articulated by one or more socialist candidates, and we'll be persuaded by that. Before I let you go, though, I have to ask you, Sarah, because we've heard so much about it this weekend, are there gender differences in in attitudes within this movement? Well, I think that some of those differences have been drastically exaggerated. There's certainly all kinds of Twitter sniping that goes on. (laughs) Some of it's misogynistic, sure. Um, But I don't think that's the bulk of the conversation. What I found actually is that um, there are, especially among younger women, there's a tendency to look at the policies of the candidates and think, which of these would actually benefit more women? And women, among other things, are uh, more women are the heads of households that are under the poverty line. A lot of women um, work in care jobs like nursing or teaching that are often under attack from anti-union forces. Um, Women work the double shift of working during the day and then taking care of kids and they make 78 cents on the male dollar. So because of all that criteria, I and I think actually a lot of other young women have found that Bernie Sanders actually represents better than Hillary Clinton, a better chance for more women, even though, of course, we would all like to see a world where women can be equally powerful as men and there isn't, um, there are no glass ceilings. More important to me is the very large basement in which a lot of women are dwelling right now. Um, and actually, this uh, just last week, I talked to some members of the Nurses Union, which has endorsed Bernie Sanders for exactly this reason. They're like, yeah, it would be great to vote for a woman. Kind of wish Bernie Sanders was a woman. <laughs> but the fact is, he's been fighting for years for exactly the same things we've been organizing for. You know, they all want universal health care because patients come in and, uh, you know, they're sick. The woman I was talking to works in intensive care. And the first question out of their mouth is, what is this going to cost? She's like, that's sick. That's so sick. Um, And so they're Bernie Sanders supporters. And they actually take that as um, uh, they understand that as as complementing their gender analysis, if you will. Sarah Leonard, Bhaskar Sankara. Their book is The Future We Want, Radical Ideas for the New Century. I thank you both so much for spending time with us today. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Thank you.